0: Welcome to One Sweet Dream, a podcast where we explore the dream that was and is the Beatles. welcome to One Sweet Dream. This is the third installment of the Maureen Cleave interview series. I am your host Diana Erickson and I am again joined by Duncan Driver. This time we shift our focus to John Lennon. This will be a two-part episode. This is part one. So yes, we are going to focus on Maureen Cleave's infamous profile on John Lennon. This is the more popular than Jesus interview, the one that sparked outrage in the U.S., making the Beatles' U.S. tour a hellish experience and ultimately undermining the objective of this exercise with Cleve, which was to establish each Beatle as a distinct, complex, and individual entity, countering the images established in A Hard Day's Night. Instead, all attention was refocused on Lennon and his one comment, reinforcing the notion that he was the opinionated Beatle both in the public's mind and perhaps even in Lennon's own mind. But what was also lost in all of this brouhaha around Lenin's one comment was one of the most delightful and insightful interviews with Lennon from the 60s. He is unusually open and revealing here, full of swagger and charm as he grandstands for Cleve, who is, as always, a brilliant observer sketching a portrait of John that captures his magnetism, vulnerability, and eccentricity. This contemporaneous portrait of John is important because so much of our understanding of this period is informed by what the Beatles said later through a post-breakup lens. And this especially applies to Lennon, who was most interested in reframing his experiences during the Beatles era. The John that we find here is sometimes maddening, sometimes endearing, sometimes wildly inappropriate, but always, always amusing. Just to set the stage, the interview with John was the first of the Cleve interviews. So she spends a little bit of time establishing where the Beatles are at at this time before delving into John. This interview appeared in the Evening Standard in March, 1966. So without further ado, I think it's time we jumped into this fascinating interview going beyond John's one infamous comment to see what else he had to say. And happily, I'm again joined by my friend, Duncan Driver. Hello, Duncan. Welcome back.
1: It's wonderful to be back.
0: Are you ready to dig into this notorious interview with me?
1: I'm ready to dig a tunnel from Canberra, Australia, all the way to Los Angeles.
0: And all the way to Weybridge. Okay, excellent. All the way to Weybridge. (laughs) Here we go. this whole debate around what John said undermined the whole objective of these interviews? Maybe not necessarily in the UK, but certainly in the US. And I think in the long run, you know, in terms of how these interviews have been um, represented in the books, in some ways, the other four interviews have been largely ignored.
1: Yeah, I think because there was notoriety around one rather fleeting comment. that was made in John's article. It didn't have the effect of creating four distinct personalities. I think maybe that was achieved for John through a means that he didn't intend. He became the kind of focal point, but it was less, here's four individual Beatles. It was more, here's John Lennon, and here's the other three kind of backing him up and supporting him and defending him.
0: Yes, yes. And... Then this compounded this idea that he was opinionated and had something to say. But again, when we look at George and Paul, they say things that are equally provocative. They just did not spark the same outrage. And as a result, the image of each beetle became very um, unbalanced
1: Yeah, or know, unrepresentative.
0: I've
1: never, I've never made this connection before, but... Um... A few years later, when John will sing the Ballad of John and Yoko, he's clearly drawing parallels between himself and Jesus Christ. He yeah. says, Christ, you know, it ain't easy, blah, 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 they're going to crucify me. Yeah. I wonder if the seeds of that comparison are in the experience he had with this article and the fact that um, he, he is comparing the Beatles as a unit to Christ here. Um, but the way it gets interpreted and taken up and criticized in some quarters but then supported in others like you see that that black and white image of a woman standing at an airport with the sign saying Lennon saves
0: yeah 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 um
1: i wonder if that um that could sort of laid the groundwork for this later comparison between himself and jesus
0: well i think i think you're right that in some ways this probably sparked this complex in John. I think this experience was incredibly traumatizing to John, but also it established the image of John Lennon in the public as the controversial political Beatle. But more importantly, I think that John really internalized the experience and it had a profound effect on his self-image. And, you know, it, it created a bit of his view of himself as the truth teller and provocateur, which obviously he really leaned into by the end of the 60s. So you know, I think it was both terrifying to John, but ultimately maybe also exciting because he realized the power that he had to incite a, a massive reaction. And so uh, eventually he turned it into a positive, you know, leaning into this, being provocative about something that was meaningful to him.
1: Yes, and then uh, pronouncements that he would make in the media from then on have this Sermon on the Mount quality, don't they?
0: Exactly, exactly. If the groundwork hadn't been laid, and then he and Yoko had started their peace activities, I'm not sure it would have had the same resonance for John himself or Mm. for the world if he hadn't already been notorious and uh, you know for having said something so so provocative
1: yeah i almost feel like when he writes the ballad of john and yoko he's trying to capitalize on the oh, 1966 absolutely. notoriety and i don't know whether he quite did i think he was probably hoping that the song would have uh have that notoriety attached to it in the same way but but kind of didn't uh, wanting <laughs> it agree. to be banned you know what i, I mean?
0: agree everybody kind of shrugged and went yeah whatever you know yeah. and 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 again i think that at the time it was very scary for john but then i think it probably became part of his self-image that he liked you know that he is this lightning rod truth teller provocateur you know
1: yeah, it, it would feed your ego to be considered the icon of the band. Yes. Which, that uh, kind of uh, intentionally or unintentionally, the effect of the article was to turn him into a, an icon, either to be worshipped or to be smashed.
0: Cleve was friendly with the Beatles and was one of their go-to journalists. I did a little digging after, after our last episode and Paul McCartney did say this about Cleve. He said that she was interesting and easy to talk to and was somebody that they knew very well. So that probably leads to um, the fact that they are relaxed and open with her. And also it was, it was rumored that John and Maureen Cleve had uh, an affair Now, I dug into that as well. Maureen Cleve has consistently defended the fact that they did not have an affair. So I tend to believe her. I mean, there's no reason for her, you know, at 75 to still be defending this if it wasn't true. But it seems like they had a tight relationship. And uh, also Maureen got married in 1966. So I mean, that could be a reason for her to again deny it. Or to me, it kind of it kind of supports the fact that she probably did not have an affair if she's about to get married herself, but who knows?
1: I get the fact that they had a connection. Though. Yes. And, you know, John likes his strong, opinionated women, clever women too. And I'd say she falls into the category of John's she, type, don't you? She
0: absolutely falls into John's type. And so I agree with you. Regardless of whether or not they had a physical relationship, I think they had a flirtation a connection and they had fun together. And, and yeah. you can tell that I think in reading both how she describes him and how he, he acts with her. So yeah. I think that's important to know before before jumping into this because this seems like somebody who is a little bit on, like John, John comes off as somebody who's on for her, you know? Yeah.
1: And she comes across in the way she's uh, critical but also tolerant of him uh, as a bit of a parental figure. I mean, she, she, her attitude towards him, like calling him um, indolent or daft, but also charming, you get the, the attitude to him is almost like an Aunt Mimi or a Yoko, don't you think?
0: Yeah, it could. Be. It, I think she switches from that to somebody that is flirting. Like I said last time, I get yeah. the sense that she kind of sees him as a bit of a rascal. Mm. And she's playful with him, too. So she's slightly more mature than him, but she also finds him, I think, quite seductive and uh,
1: charming. Yeah, I agree.
0: So I guess let's jump in. We're going to do the same thing as last time. We're going to follow the same format where I am going to have you read, as you did last time, through the article. And we're going to do the same Stop every time i mean we we ended up basically doing it every paragraph (laughs) (laughs) so i think it's fairly expected when we're going to stop but actually in this one there are some statements that i will stop you because this one is jam-packed full of really um interesting comments by john and and really great observations by maureen
1: yeah and at least uh, i suppose the silver lining is that it's a shorter article than the ringo one So the article is titled, On a Hill in Surrey, A Young Man Famous, Loaded, and Waiting for Something. How does a beetle live? John Lennon lives like this. It was this time three years ago that the Beatles first grew famous. Ever since then, observers have anxiously tried to gauge whether their fame was on the wax or on the wane. They foretold the fall of the old Beatles. They searched diligently for the new Beatles, which was as pointless as looking for the new Big Ben. Can I stop myself there? (laughs) Of course. Just a, a quick comment. I find it really interesting that when you look at the Beatles in retrospect, it's tempting to think of 1966 as a bit of a transition year. From an old Beatles to a new Beatles that would be announced with the arrival of Sergeant Pepper yeah. and the growth of facial hair, um, but this is interesting because she's already talking about commentators having foretold the fall of the old Beatles already before Pepper, looking for the new Beatles beginning, which is a little earlier than than most you know historians after the fact would place it. Um, don't you find that interesting?
0: Yeah, there's two things. One, and I absolutely love this paragraph, as I said at the beginning, that in some ways, she starts more generally here, because this is the first of the series, you know, so she's establishing the Beatles as as an entity before she goes into John. There's the artistic transition of the Beatles. But this is the establishment of the Beatles as a famous artistic group. She's establishing the permanence of them is there by 1966. You know, when you watch all those early years of them being asked constantly, and we discussed this in the last episode about how this constant question about when is the bubble going to burst had to have driven them crazy. I mean, it must have made them insecure in some ways. And it was a weird sort of obsession of asking these guys when, (laughs) when they're going to be over. I mean, how the hell would they know, you know, but it seemed to be this constant game, like, how can this continue? And so I loved her point that they are not going away. Whatever happens at this point, the Beatles are the Beatles. Their, their fame is beyond question. And I loved her comparison to big Ben Mm. um, in that, Big Ben, you could replicate it 20 times over, but they wouldn't be Big Ben. There's only one. There's the original. The others would just be copies and therefore not interesting. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. She establishes the Beatles as a fixture in the cultural landscape of Great Britain.
0: Exactly. Um, so she a recognizes
1: their significance in a way that other people who think of them as something faddish wouldn't have done.
0: She's establishing the permanence of them. And I don't know if anybody else had done this by this point. So, you know, I I find this paragraph and the following one incredible, um, just in terms of saying they're here. There's the Queen and the Beatles. I think this is revolutionary. I think that Sergeant Pepper is interesting in that it suggests that not only are they permanent and famous, but they will continue to grow. I guess we wouldn't have known necessarily whether their star would continue to become brighter and brighter. And I think that was the surprising thing about the Beatles is that mm. they never became just established. They continue to get better.
1: Yeah, I've often thought about the Beatles that um, they are the the great exception to that physical rule of show business that what goes up must come down Somehow... And no one else has ever achieved this miracle in quite the same way. The Beatles got to the summit of the mountain and they just kept going and they're still going. They're in the stratosphere. Yeah. And the more time passes, the more godlike they seem, at least to me.
0: (laughs) Well, to me too. So, well, let's, let's read the next paragraph because she builds on this. And I think, again, these are such exceptionally important statements and I wonder how they read in 1966, like whether people kind of went, yes, it's true. You know, they are royalty.
1: At last, they have given up. They meaning journalists. Yes. The Beatles' fame is beyond question. It has nothing to do with whether they are rude or polite, married or unmarried, 25 or 45. Whether they appear on top of the pops or do not appear on top of the pops. They are well above any position even a rolling stone might jostle for. They are famous in the way the Queen is famous. When John Lennon's Rolls Royce with its black wheels and its black windows goes past, people say it's the Queen or it's the Beatles. With her, they share the security of a stable life at the top. They all tick over in the public esteem. She in Buckingham Palace, they in weybridge Esher area. Only Paul remains in London.
0: Yeah, this just builds on what we just talked about, and I just love this paragraph so much. You know, it suggests that their fame is no longer insecure. There's almost nothing they can do. You know, she makes this point that they don't have to perform anymore. And it's interesting because that's what Ringo said, you know, in his is that he sort of felt this security that he could get married, you know, that it didn't matter that they are beyond the rules. And that's what she's saying too. It doesn't matter if they're rude or not. They are the Beatles. They can do what they want. They are royalty or gods in a way.
1: Yeah. I think she's recognized that to think or write about the Beatles according to the tropes and the blueprint of show business mm-hmm. in 1966 is reductive. Um, it sort of it places the Beatles within inside a system of entertainment or cultural music that is bigger and more important than they are. And she recognizes the fact that people who are still doing that have the wrong end of the stick. She's reminding them, no, the Beatles are now bigger than the system that you were talking about. And to wonder whether their new single is going to achieve better than the Rolling Stones in chart positions is to take the wrong view of it.
0: That's right. That they have become larger, more powerful than the world of pop or rock, that they have ascended and have become cultural icons. And it really suggests that they have the power now. And I think that's an incredibly important statement because all of these journalists that were wondering when the bubble was going to burst, when they were going to be over, that suggests that the Beatles weren't in control. She's suggesting now that the Beatles have the power.
2: like to be dead I know what it is
0: to be sad you know there's always like the, the stones versus the Beatles but it just never seemed particularly real because they were just at a different level you know in terms of fame in terms of establishment in terms of what they were trying to do in the world
1: I always thought that people who wrote about the Beatles in the 60s had a hard time seeing the forest for the trees. What I mean by that is they, they might look at the Beatles or Herman's Hermits or the Stones or the Trogs or whomever it is, and they tend to think of these people as all on a relatively even playing field and that you need to have the distance of 50-plus years to see how much greater the Beatles loom over that cultural landscape. But this suggests that Maureen Cleave, at least, already has that perspective. It's like she's writing about the Beatles in 1966 from the 21st century. (laughs) She's so aware of how much more significant they are than pretty much everyone else.
0: Well, that's why I think this is so important, is that she's kind of establishing what will become. And and I agree with you. Sometimes when you look at the music pages from the time, it's confusing to see the Beatles compared to other acts of the time. It's like, wait, let's not even compare them. But then they were also treated differently. You know, they mm. were just so dominant. And you know what this reminds me of is when they're on the roof in Get Back and they're playing to London and everybody's just like, it's the Beatles. You know what I mean? No other group could have done that. Because yeah. they stood for the UK, and to me, there was affection for them. They are sort of the beacons of, of the UK at the time. And I mean, for me, growing up, they were always kind of gods, you know? There was nothing else as famous as the Beatles. Like, they weren't celebrities to me. There was just like, well, they're Beatles, you know, so they're magic. Whereas yeah. right now, also, their whole canon is being treated that way as well, you know?
1: Yeah, that's right, and... And she gets this.
0: And what's interesting is the Windsors, remember the, the Windsors decide to give a peek into, yeah. you know, the, to make them more accessible to the people. And in some ways, what Maureen is doing is doing the same with the Beatles, because right now they also occupy this mythical status. And so she's giving us a peek into the world of the Beatles. But I think, as opposed to the Windsors, where it didn't really work, this does work because the Beatles are so phenomenally interesting and talented that having a peek into them only builds their mystique. Do you agree, That's or right. do you, what do you think? I, I do agree,
1: and we've already given one example of that: the fact that John's Christ-like resurrection that would happen if a couple of years later has its uh, has its seeds sown in this article suggests exactly what you say this article is not something that demystifies and reduces the beetles to human status it does the opposite of that it creates some of the myths or or some of the um the the iconic qualities that they have that would that would grow later on
0: yeah i guess the lesson is is if you're going to open the doors To your actual life, you better be sure your life is pretty damn interesting, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And for the Beatles, the Beatles, they couldn't help but be interesting. Like Maureen says, they're the most fun, the most interesting people she knows.
2: I know. And so, yeah.
0: Maureen said this about the Beatles. Their behavior ranged from preposterous, farcical, and impossible to the kindly, thoughtful, and polite. You are outraged, diverted, and charmed. You are never, ever bored. They are interesting. Like when you read this interview about John, John is not very ordinary, you know?
1: No, he is extraordinary in what, some ways that are uh, ex- amazing, appealing, that you kind of look up to, and in others that are sort of baffling and you shake your head out a little bit.
0: <laughs> but you know what? The baffling shake your head at, kind of makes him more lovable. hmm because yeah. it makes him more fallible and human in some ways, you know, and sweet.
1: Yeah, he, he seems a little bit less spiky and caustic than he might otherwise be.
0: Yes, yes. And, and the interesting thing about this article is it was done before John has developed the spikiness. You know, that's one of the things that I find really fascinating about it is John is still open.
1: He's so open. He's so unguarded. He's almost childlike in the way he trusts Maureen Cleave. Exactly. Um, Do we need to talk about uh, five rather laconic (laughs) and telling words only Paul remains in London?
0: Well, I would love to, but can we just wait for a couple more paragraphs to go into that one? Yeah, yeah. Sure, sure. It is profound that she makes a note of this.
1: Yes, it is. Another example of how perceptive and uh, revealing she can be.
0: Absolutely.
1: All right, on to the next little chunk. Yes. The Weybridge community consists of the three married beetles. They live there among the wooded hills and the stockbrokers. They have not worked since Christmas, and their existence is secluded and curiously timeless. What day is it? John Lennon asks, with interest, when you ring up with news from outside. The fans are still at the gates, but the Beatles see only each other. They are better friends than ever before. Ringo and his wife Maureen oh, may stop, drop stop, in on stop, John. Stop, okay, stop. I'll stop. Yeah,
0: thank you. Um, yeah, th- I think this one is interesting because it establishes the community, the seat of power of Weybridge, Esher.
2: Yeah. <laughs> you know, the court. And
0: The court, exactly, with the three Beatles. And so there is a distinction that this is like the established married Beatles. And they are outside of London. And and it seems like they live in this little bubble. Doesn't it, don't you get a sense that they live in this little Beatles bubble? And what's nice is that she ends this paragraph with they are better friends than ever before. So you get this idea of warmth.
1: Yeah, and it, it's it's curious that they want these articles to establish each beetle as a distinct and individual identity. Um, and that works in some ways, but phrases like they're better friends than ever before also work to reaffirm the unity of the group. And holding court in Weybridge Esher is another way of, of emphasizing that, I think. But I, I certainly take what you say on, and I agree with it. I do like that phrase, uh, their existence is secluded and curiously timeless. Like the normal laws of physics do not apply to these gods.
0: Well, exactly. And certainly the rules do not apply to them. What day is it? You know, John is saying this Ringo has a sense of this. They kind of are protected from the world, like in the royalty, that the world almost doesn't intrude on their little bubble. You know, this builds the mythology of the Beatles because it expands who they are, it makes them more interesting, and yet it reinforces this fact that they are this incredibly tight community and family, you know. Absolutely. And that they live in this very rarefied world that sounds amazing, actually, where you know you don't have to be worried about anything.
1: Yeah, I do like John asking, what day is it? And then he, uh, she talks about news from the outside. It just makes me laugh. I can imagine John saying, what news from the outside world? <laughs>
0: that <laughs> it it's vaguely interesting to him and vaguely not yeah you know? that's and it's actually it is quite opposed to john lennon in 1970 who all was very much in the politics of the time this is a john who is actually quite happy to be apart from it you know
1: yeah ringo and his wife maureen may drop in on john and sin john may drop in on ringo george and patty may drop in on john and sin and they might all go around to Ringo's by car, of course. Outdoors is for holidays. I think to me the most interesting element of that paragraph is who's conspicuously absent from it. Every beetle and every beetle spouse is mentioned except <laughs> Paul and Jane. You just don't Absolutely. seem to be part of this little community.
0: Absolutely. This little society that she's talking about is made up of the the three beetles and their spouses. And yet Paul drove up to Weybridge regularly to write with, you know, Paul talks about this, about Mm -hmm. driving up all the time. So Paul is present, but what he's not present for is the day-to-day, the the playland of the day-to-day.
1: They watch films. They play rowdy games of buccaneer. They watch television till it goes off, often playing records at the same time. They while away the small hours of the morning making mad tapes. Bedtimes and meal times have no meaning as such. We've never had time before to do anything but just be Beatles, John Lennon said. Pause there.
0: Sure. I mean, this is just building on what we said before. I love reading this. It sounds so groovy and 60s. And I just picture them playing music and taking LSD and dancing and and sort of just having the play that they really had not had for the past few years. Don't you get that sense?
1: Yeah. And just as you say, uh, the rules don't apply to them. That's there in the fact that they don't follow a standard pattern of sleeping, waking hours, <laughs> no, or exactly. mealtimes. John will talk later about not having the slightest idea what lunch is. That, that's that's seeded here. That meal times have no meaning as such. They eat when they're hungry. That is all.
0: Exactly. There's something very free about their existence and fun and, and childlike in some ways, or young, just young, yeah. yeah. that I love.
1: Yeah, I'm intrigued by this statement of John's. We never had time before to do anything but just be Beatles. I, don't, like, I almost want to be critical of it. I, I want to say, isn't that what you're doing now? You're just being, whereas before you were doing so much. Being a Beatle meant showing up to concerts, it meant performing, it meant recording, it meant having to go to receptions, it meant having to give occasional speeches. Now you get a chance to just be over this three-month period. Is he saying, we're not being Beatles, we're just being, I don't know, John Lennon, Ringo Starr, George Harrison?
0: Yeah, it's a really interesting comment. Every time I read this Profile. I stopped at that because I do think the notion of being a Beatle is deeply imprinted and internalized by all of these guys. You know, mm. I, I know some people would debate about George, but I, I would, I would argue that they are Beatles at the core. That's how they see themselves. So this idea of we've never had time before to do anything but just be Beatles is a curious statement for John. Mm. But I do think that he probably means it in the way that you mentioned it as as the performance element of it and I think it may be tied to what Maureen said at the beginning that you know that they've been working so hard to become to be famous to be the Beatles and now they can just relax a little bit you know Mm. I think I think that that's what he's suggesting is now they get the opportunity to explore Beatle John. And I was thinking about this, this period here, because this, this portrait that she describes is lovely. But I was also thinking about the fact that later, this is about the time when John dates his period of going through murder. You know, this is sort of John's, quote unquote, Fat Elvis period. And at the same time, like I was thinking about, well, what songs is John writing? And he's just written Nowhere Man. And so there is this sense that they have this groovy, fun play world. But I think that this was also a challenge for John in some ways. Having this undisciplined, unstructured time probably also was a little bit um, unsettling for John.
1: Mm, I Don't can you see think? that. Yeah, yeah, total. like It's going 180 degrees in the opposite direction instead of every moment of your life being structured and accounted for. Suddenly, there's just this chasm of nothing before exactly. you. And yeah, the, the pulling out of the rug would be quite disconcerting.
0: Yeah, and you know, one of the reasons I thought about this was I was looking at the day-by-day, the, day day, um, the uh, Baron Miles day-by-day, day, just sort of to get the context of what they were doing before and after this. Mm. And I came across this quote just later in 1966 about why he did the film How I Won the War. And he said there were many reasons for doing it. And he said it was Dick Lester, and he asked me, it was anti-war, and I didn't know what to do because the Beatles had stopped touring. And I thought, if I stopped... And thought about it, I was going to have a big bum trip for nine months. So I tried to avoid the depression of the change of life by leaping into the movie. So I thought that was really interesting. And of course, that's something that happened six months later. But I suspected that he was aware of that because it had happened before.
1: Mm, Yeah, makes me think too that uh, I don't know how successful that strategy was doing how I won the war in order to stave off boredom and depression because everything I've I've read about John in Spain in the end of 66 suggests he desperately needed <laughs> Ringo and Paul with him because he was not in a good place
0: <laughs> Well, that's what he said. That's what he said to Hunter is he was never so happy to see the Beatles as when he got back. And that's yeah. the thing that, that he says about the film is the thing I remember is that Dick Lester had more fun than I did, meaning yeah. he did not have fun. Exactly. But it just, it just hit home to me that John didn't want a repeat of perhaps what he was going through at this time. Hmm. You know, And so even though they are having playtime, I think it was probably a mixed bag, which we don't see in this profile, but which we can infer from songs like Nowhere Man and, and <laughs> I'm Only Sleeping, you know, some of the other songs that John was writing at this time.
1: Yeah, I think you get a, a glimpses of the other side of his playfulness between the lines of some of what goes on in this interview and you certainly get it at the very end of this interview absolutely Um, but but i know what you're saying
0: yeah we put a pin in in the paul comment and i wonder if we can talk about this here and certainly it should be discussed in greater detail in the paul profile the fact that paul doesn't live there Um, but i think it's important to think about from john's perspective
1: That little sentence, only Paul, remains in London. There's a lot of heavy lifting in those five words. Uh, Maybe I'm reading stuff into it, but it seems like a perceptive and insightful comment that she's placed there on purpose.
0: And what do you read into it?
1: Um, The fact that, uh, all right, let's say, Um, the three of us are siding with Alan Klein, you have to as well is the crack in the Liberty Bell. Mm -hmm. Maybe Paul remaining in London in 1966 is a a, a little minor version of that, the crack in the wishing bell, (laughs) perhaps.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, it certainly reflects Paul's independence or his... Uh, willingness to be independent because this was his choice, you know, as we'll discuss in the Paul profile, he talks about this being his choice, but also there's another interview he gives, which is quite funny where he's like, well, we talked about it and, and they said it was okay. We decided it was, it was like they had a group meeting about the fact that Paul was not going (laughs) to live with them, which actually does speak to their closeness, you know, and and the fact that he felt like he needed to address the fact that he didn't want to live there. And mm. he is present. We know that Paul is driving up to, to write mm. with John. And um, there's stories of accounts of Paul and Jane being at dinner parties. So they're around, but they're not mm-hmm. there for the day-to-day. And they're not in this little bubble.
1: And maybe when John would say later, it got false. And he gives the example of Paul driving down to Weybridge to write a song. And we've been sort of critical of that, saying, well, John, that's how songs are written. That's how creative partnerships work. Maybe what John is alluding to is the fact that Paul was not part of this bubble. And that's what was false about it.
0: Exactly. And both of them dated to when there was physical distance between them.
2: Is there anybody?
0: So he's in this little bubble and, you know, the, the the three of them have committed to being together, you know, but Paul has said, well, I've only got one foot in when we're working. It, you know, I think it would have given uh, some impression or would have left some impression, especially to John, who is Paul's partner. I think it was most meaningful to John yeah. because their whole writing was contingent on them being together all the time. And part of that was sharing everything, you know, sharing all their experiences, being of the same mind, right?
1: Yeah, and if you're constantly being asked when the bubble is going to burst and you're simultaneously making these kind of tentative steps into the world of independent adulthood, it would be concerning if you were John Lennon that Paul's steps are so decidedly printed in a very different place.
0: Right, exactly. And I think that there were seeds of insecurity that were sown here. I think that the song Yesterday uh, was the beginning of, of an issue between John and Paul, as well as John's own issues. You know, John begins to have some insecurities in 1965. But I think this may be compounding some issues and they're still very tight. So I don't want to suggest they're not very tight, but Paul making the choice not to be, would have said something. And also as much fun as they may be having with their little group, there would be always this knowledge. Well, Paul is doing something else. He didn't take acid with us. He took acid with a different crew. You know, he's off with Tara Brown and Robert Fraser. And as you and I discussed in that same conversation where John says that it got false when he had to ride out to Weybridge to write together, he also says that when I was going through murder, Paul was full of confidence. Yes. And, and I think it's, it's meaningful. And, you know, Paul, when he talks about the song Nowhere Man, I've always, you know, the way that he talks about Nowhere Man has always been confusing to me because he talks about John saying that he had a hard time writing it and then he ended up going home and writing it and he said, and and it turns out it was about me and I've never known whether or not Paul was saying that the song was actually about Paul or it turned out that John was saying, in the end, it was about himself, you know? Mm. And I think that's interesting because Nowhere Man really probably could suggest or reflect the state of their relationship as well and to me the song really is about two two people you know
1: yeah that's really interesting um i haven't thought about the song as being about two people because it's called nowhere now and you know it sounds so singular but um, obviously he's singing it to somebody yep. and, you know, there are lines in it, like, isn't he a bit like you and me? So there is this kind of triangulation of personalities exactly. involved.
0: Exactly. And, and, and he's saying nowhere, man, please listen. You don't know what you're missing. Yeah, there was yeah. a sense. And, and because, you know, the fandom, the authorship has always underestimated the relationship between John and Paul. I suspect that they've underestimated how much John and Paul speak to each other. And so, and it could be just about John and the you and me could be him and the general public. But it also could be about John and Paul. Because, as you've said, the isn't he a bit like you and me suggests there is a he, you and me. There is somebody else, the public, and John.
3: Mm, yeah.
0: I mean, I'm not trying to sell anyone on this idea I just get the sense that there is another person in this song because to me there is some frustration baked into the line he's as blind as he can be just sees what he wants to see um, nowhere man can you see me at all which could be John talking to himself but willful blindness is most associated he's as blind with Paul
2: as he can be just sees what he wants to see
0: And this theme of not being seen or acknowledged is one that runs through this period. It appears again with uh, the song, and your bird can sing.
1: Yeah, that's true.
0: You know, the line, um, you say you've seen seven wonders and your bird is green, but you can't see me. In fact, you know, (laughs) the whole song is a long complaint about not being seen or heard or understood. But if somebody would look his way, John would be around. I mean, to me, it sounds intimate. It sounds real. Um, I know people take these songs as John's existential angst, but I don't think it's a stretch to think that John is frustrated with himself and then frustrated with Paul. Like, do you even notice I'm going through murder? I thought we were in this together, you know? uh, Because John and Paul are so mentally connected. They are in each other's minds. They have told us this, that when they write, they hear each other. So I think they make their way into each other's music. If nothing else, I think the song reflects that John needed some attention and reassurance. And one of the targets could have been McCartney. And also, you know, Newer Man, John's not just unmotivated. He's making plans for Nova. There is a sense that John is trying to make something happen, but he's disappointed or frustrated. So, you know, we're, we're now going through these, these interviews to look at this situation with a new lens. I'm just suggesting that we look at the music with a new lens too. I just wonder if, from John's perspective, there's a bit of frustration that they have set up shop and community and court out here and yet part of their crowd their royal set is not there you know
1: mm. yeah i've been reading a, a book about the english comedian peter cook um this is a little bit of a colder set conversation but it's relevant because mm-hmm. um the the author ha- did interviews with a number of people who were part of Uh, Wendy and Peter Cook's um, dinner party set Mm through sort of 1964, 1966. Uh, And she mentions John Lennon, but when she's asked to provide a kind of snapshot about what that experience was like, she says, Paul McCartney being at dinner in this amazing dining room with his sheepdog sat next to him at the dinner table, (laughs) feeding it filet (laughs) mignon from his plate and again like it's sort of it's something that a, a member of royalty oh, would do for you don't mind sure. if my dog sits at the table do you and <laughs> eats the dinner that you prepared for the humans but the fact that the memorable thing is Paul being there on his own not the others or, or not John Lennon
0: well and that's right that really Paul was in the nerve center of london and Marianne faithful talks about this um, about everybody came to paul And certainly John would have been aware of that. And um, when we look at what happens in the next year, John practically moves into Cavendish to write Pepper. And then he tries to get them all to move to an island together. So I do think that her flagging Paul not being there, it doesn't come up. John doesn't talk about Paul not being there, but I think he, he is conspicuous in his absence.
1: Yeah, and maybe later attempts to get them to all move to this island in Greece or, you know, uh, what was the other idea? Like a a village in the Cotswolds or something like that. Yes. There there, there may be attempts to fix this problem that happened in 1966.
0: I think so, because he's got the other Beatles there. So I think it's a way for him to corral all of his buddies together. So I think for John, the idea of his community and family being together is really important to him. So I think the fact that Maureen flags this is important. I mean, it's probably probably important that Paul was in London too, because one sort of gets the sense that maybe this bubble could have floated off Um, and then... (laughs) disconnected from sort of the nerve center of london if paul wasn't there you know
1: yeah no i think it's only for the betterment of the group's creative enterprise that paul was soaking up the atmosphere of swinging london
0: right even if there was a
1: personal cost within the band
0: well that's the thing i suspect that there is a personal cost I mean, the Beatles have spent all their time together until this time. You know, Paul has just been George's best man. They're all extremely close at this point. Maureen Cleave actually did an interview in something like 2011, and she talks about how close all of them were. Uh, I did think in those days, certainly they liked each other tremendously. I think they were really good friends. And she says specifically, Lennon and McCartney were also extremely close. Uh, Obviously they were the most important part of the group, Um, but they were, I
3: think, very, very fond of each other and um, very funny together, and, and uh, I think they really liked each other. Yes, they did.
0: This is when I think Paul and John begin to have problems. Like, this is when Paul comes out with uh, Eleanor Rigby, and there's that little upset where he throws it out to the crowd, and John is still talking about, he's still upset about this 10 years later, and when he's writing She Said, She Said. George is the one who stops by. So I think this is the seeds of some issues, some underlying issues and dynamics between Flynn and McCartney.
1: He is much the same as he was before. He still peers down his nose, arrogant as an eagle, although contact lenses have right at the short sight that originally caused the expression. Just one comment about that. I like the idea of him peering down his nose, having watched a lot of footage of John giving interviews. I know exactly the look that she's talking about. um, That that seems so regal, doesn't it? Peering down his nose from a throne-like vantage point.
0: And the the idea of an eagle, that actually, that to me is such a brilliant image as well. John Lennon can sometimes look slightly eagle-like because he does kind of look down. You know, (laughs) there's something perfect about that. And I like the fact that she both acknowledges that this trait of his comes from actually something that wasn't born of an arrogance. It was born of short-sightedness, but it is also true to him, which softens it a little bit. You know what I mean? Like if she just said that he was arrogant as an eagle, it would be a little off-putting, but the fact that she says that it comes from a deficiency of not being able to see, Mm. it, it makes it a part of his vulnerability and a part of his actual personality.
1: Yeah, that's true. Um, I was laughing earlier because I thought there is something slightly avian about John's physiognomy. That's what that I his mean, his, no- nose. his nose. is quite beaky. It and is. Do, do you remember in the, there's that um, studio footage of him in 1980, which he wanted destroyed, but some there's a, there's a bit of it that remains. And the reason he wanted it destroyed is uh, <laughs> when he watched it, he said, it looked like a fucking bird.
0: <laughs> and he does. But that's why I think the peering down his nose, arrogant as an eagle, is actually an image that characterizes John Lennon. You know, it's yeah. almost like a caricature of him in a perfect way.
1: Very clever, Maureen. you know. Very right. clever. Um, where does it go from here?
2: Verse, same as the first. I'm
1: He looks more like Henry VIII than ever now. His face is filled out. He is just as imperious, just as unpredictable, indolent, disorganized, childish, vague, charming, and quick-witted. He is still easygoing, still tough as hell. Stop. Never asked. Him. Sorry. Okay. Well, <laughs> Stop. There, there Stop. is a lot to unpack there. there. there is so much I, I will concede. There.
0: Yes. <laughs> yeah, this is one of my all-time favorite descriptions of John. I, I mean, it's so affectionate, yet so astute. You know, she captures the maddening contradictions that make up John, you know, his imperiousness, Mm -hmm. his childlike helplessness, his toughness, his ease, his wit. Um, Like, she captures the fact that he's a force of nature. But I think most importantly, she captures his regal nature, you know? Yeah. And this comparison to Henry VIII is so perfect. And it's it's always stayed with me because John does have this haughtiness, this swagger, this self-centeredness. Often in the Beatles world, John is positioned as the king. And there is this imperiousness and comfort with being in this position. What do you think?
1: I agree. This and a couple of other bits a little later on remind me of what somebody said of I think it was David Bowie but the the point was long before he was famous he was already acting as though he were famous there's that idea that you know you you manifest what you want and you behave in a way that accords with where you want to be and eventually it will come true Um, there's a sense of that in this isn't there
0: There is, except with John, I don't know if it was an act. (laughs) I suspect that John always believed he was special. And that's what I get from this, is that John Lennon believes, like there is part of him that loves to be special. Oh, yeah. And that is very comfortable with this. John knows how brilliant he is. He knows how creative he is. The only thing is that calling him Henry VIII or the king elevates him over the Beatles. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, the public perception of the two of them is, is different because Paul is the antithesis. You know, Paul kind of would hate to be called a king, you know, because that's just not Paul's personality. And so I think that society kind of reflects how they themselves behave.
1: Yeah, I but- know what you mean, like calling John Henry the Gate almost, uh, you know, if you want to complete the analogy, then Paul becomes a kind of Anne Boleyn-like figure, beheaded by the statement, I want a divorce.
0: (laughs) Exactly, exactly, and that is how they are treated, or else Catherine of Aragon, who bored him, it puts all the power in John's court.
2: Yeah.
0: I don't think that John Lennon sees Paul McCartney as Catherine of Aragon or as Anne Boleyn, because I think the way that John sees Paul is as an equal king. It's like yeah, if John an equal is...
1: but rival monarch.
0: Exactly, exactly. That, that Paul is um, Louis XIV. You know, I know they're, they're not contemporaries, but this is how I believe that John and Paul see each other as equal monarchs, in my opinion. I think that John thinks that they are all son son. They are all royalty, <laughs> but th- that he yes. and Paul are co-kings. Don't you think?
1: Son kings.
0: Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you know, as I said, this is one of my favorite descriptions of John because I like the fact that this is John with swagger, and as we said, this is John before he's spiky, and so this is. John cocky flirting and peacocking for Maureen. And I love that side of John, but there is this other very soft, very loving, very vulnerable side of John that I don't think he really shows. It it shows in little bits and pieces throughout this profile. And she kind of ends on that note. So I think she does intuit it a little bit, but that's the other side that is not really applicable to the Henry VIII uh, analogy. And it's critical to John and it's something that this podcast often leans into that side of John or, or highlights that side of John because that drives so much of John's action. It's his insecurity that so often drives John's action. It's, this is more the John of action and this regal side of John yes. that, that people love. And I love it too, but this other side is present too. And I think to me, knowing that other side exists actually offsets and enhances The Henry VIII, because Henry VIII is not that lovable, really. He's an asshole, really. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, just
1: because he cut off seven seven women's heads. (laughs) Exactly.
0: And so it's a great comparison. But I think at the same time, it's also misleading because there is this other very vulnerable side of John that exists too. And it's not just the downside. It's this very loving and soft side of John that everybody who's close to John remarks upon, you know?
1: Yeah, I was just about to say that Paul has has banged on about it a lot in interviews. John was actually a very vulnerable man. Um, But yeah, it it seems to be, no matter how many times he says it, it's not one of those remarks that people roll their eyes about and go, here he goes again. Um, Because the image of John fronting still persists as the more authentic version of his personality.
0: Exactly. And he's even said that. He's like... John had the 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 biggest armor, the biggest front of anyone, but he was so soft inside. And I think the thing is, is that John, <laughs> with his armor on, is so amusing. You know, he's so likable. And I also don't think that's fake. You know, this Henry VIII self-centered John that's eccentric and... Um, is entertaining, is true. It makes me think of the fact that John in 1980 said something like, half of me thinks I'm God Almighty, the other half of me suspects I'm a loser. So I think this idea of, you know, him being like Henry VIII, part of John believes that. And that's key to part of John. But part of John is very needy and does not believe that, you know? And I think that that's kind of where the analogy is not true, you know? Yeah. As you said, like, John needs things. He needs people. He needs to be bolstered. He needs his community.
1: Well, maybe the key difference is he does genuinely care about uh, at least his little circle of Beatles, and he sort of jealously guards and is maybe a little bit possessive of them, Mm -hmm. but he also needs them around him. He needs that support, as we were saying, you know, it's when there's the lack of physical proximity, that he starts to go, you know, a bit wobbly, as a result. And I don't know that Henry VIII is quite the same. I don't know that he has quite that same desperate need for the intimacy of his um, fellow royals. (laughs) Exactly.
0: And actually, I pulled, I pulled a quote from um, Pete Townsend, that I thought was actually um, apt. So this is what Pete Townsend said in 1968. He He said this to Rolling Stone. The difference between the way Lennon and McCartney behave with the people that are around them is incredible. What Lennon does is he sits down, immediately acknowledges the fact that he's John Lennon and that everything else, everything for the rest of the night is going to revolve around him. He completely relaxes and lets everybody feel at ease and just speaks dribble little jokes, little rubbish like he's got in his own right and little things like he'll start to dribble on and get stoned and do silly things and generally have a good time. Of course, everybody gets into his thing and also has a generally good time. But Paul McCartney worries. He wants a genuine conversation, a genuine relationship starting off from square one. We've got to get it straight that we both know where we're at before we begin. One of them is fucking Paul McCartney, a Beatle. The other is me, a huge monumental Beatle fan who still gets a kick out of sitting and talking to Paul McCartney. And he starts to tell me that he digs me and that we're on an even par so that we can begin the conversation, which completely makes me an even bigger fan. So that's all it serves to do. The conversation comes to no purpose and all he serves to do is to confuse himself. So that yeah, That's reflects, a good quote.
1: That's really interesting.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I think that supports the way that John carries his fame is that he is comfortable with the notion that I am John Lennon and you are not. And he is very comfortable with this space. And I think because he carries his fame in his and believes in his specialness, everybody else kind of believes in this too. And this is the way he is portrayed. Whereas Paul- one gets the sense that like, Paul's kind of the antithesis to this, where he, is, he would hate to be called a king. He's like, no, don't call me a king. I am a human being like everybody else. And I feel like in Paul's profile, he completely trolls John for acting like a king, you know, that he finds it quite hilarious that John does this. Like, I don't get the sense that, that Paul is like, yes, John is a king. He's like, yeah, John John thinks he's a king, whatever. You know, yeah. don't you get that sense?
1: I do, I do. Uh, it, does, it does, as you say, um, speak to a, a key difference in them. And for me, the, the difference is John will walk into a room and I suppose... Puncture the elephant sized tension yes. of his godlike status by yes. acknowledging it, yes. which puts people at their ease. Yes. Whereas Paul will try to put people at their ease by pretending to be normal, exactly. but that actually makes them ill at ease as a result.
0: <laughs> exactly. And Pete is making it clear these are both gods. And the way that John approaches it, acknowledging that he's a god and doing his things, makes us all happy. Paul, on the other hand, pretends that he is not, and that confuses everything and makes things way more complicated. The only thing I was thinking about that is ultimately, John's position is very lonely. You know, if he establishes that I am John Lennon and you are not, and he, according to everybody around them, thinks his only equal at this point is Paul McCartney, it's kind of a lonely place to be. And one can see why Paul is is trying not to be at that position. And he's saying like, look, no, 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 we're all humans. We're all people. We're all cool, which also doesn't really work. So you get the sense why both these men end up just really missing each other, you know, Yeah, because and they are extraordinary, you
1: yeah. know? And how, how perceptive Maureen is to recognize that their close-knit friendship is integral to their ability to function.
0: Right. And and she makes this point that nobody is as much fun as them. Nobody is as interesting as them.
1: Yeah. And when I said earlier about um, how when you see the Beatles interacting with each other, it's a sort of platonic ideal of friendship. Part of the reason for that is that they seem to be such equals there's a kind of yes. flow of yes. conversational repartee that doesn't belong to any one of them more than the others yes um, and that speaks to the fact that this is the beatles it's not long john silver and his band of moon dogs in the background
0: no it wasn't and so i love this idea of john as henry viii as long as we we give a kingdom to each of the <laughs> beatles henry, henry. And it's offset by what comes next. Childish, vague, disorganized, indolent, unpredictable, and then charming and quick-witted. And, and that's, that's again, you know, some of this arrogance is so offset by the fact that John wants to have fun, and he is so funny.
1: I'd add the word mercurial to this list oh. of adjectives we'd use to describe John because... Um, You can only do it in terms of polar opposites that somehow go together, like uh, tough and tender, Um, short sighted, but also very knowing and observant. Um, And so, you know, every time you think I I can fix John Lennon with this comment, I understand the nature of his character. It's this. Yes. You can also find a a John Lennon who. elides away from that, who is elusive and who can demonstrate something completely different to what you think you just pigeonholed him as. I I kind of found that watching um, Get Back, that I I thought I had a very good idea of who John Lennon was, but then actually seeing him on screen for eight plus hours made me think, maybe I know nothing about who John Lennon is.
0: (laughs) Right, well, you know, after Imperius, she says, unpredictable, and I think that's important. And that's what makes John so fascinating is that he is unpredictable, you know and and apparently the worst crime somebody around them could commit was to be boring. Mm-hmm. And you can see here, John, John is never predictable. And and that's what I mean. I talked a little bit with Martin Carr about the fact that when Paul was kind of at the height of his productivity and 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 musical genius, John was like, Yeah, but I'm going to figure out a way to be more interesting. You know what I mean? They were such good rivals in that way because Paula also is unpredictable and difficult to pigeonhole, and that's what makes them such an incredible duo.
1: It is, and it, it continues. Fred is his father. He emerged after they got famous. He was here a few weeks ago. It was only the second time in my life I'd seen him. I showed him the door. He went on cheerfully. I wasn't having him in the house. Stuff. Anything you want to comment on there?
0: Yeah, well, I think he gets a sense of joy about publicly stating
1: hmm.
0: that he showed him the door. There's a little bit of a He relishes
1: view. it, doesn't it? He
0: does relish saying this. However, this isn't the whole story. You know, because then he does invite his father in and then he does support his father. Mm. And then it's an ongoing issue for John, this relationship with his father. It's a complicated relationship. It's very complicated. And then we know in 1970, he gets incredibly upset with his father, screams at his father that you weren't there for me. And so what comes across, if you were reading this, is that You know, John Lennon is unbothered and has moved on. So there's a fair amount of fronting here, that Mm. I showed him the door and I don't need him. And yet this isn't the truth, you know?
1: No, that's right. If he was unbothered and uh, carefree about his father, he wouldn't have brought his father up in conversation or have been disappointed that Maureen Cleave didn't bring him up.
0: (laughs) exactly he exactly. didn't ask
1: about my dad which suggests he'd already told her that his dad might be entering the scene at some point
0: point. and this is where i find john so transparent and childlike he's like mm. bursting to say this you know yeah
1: absolutely his enthusiasm is undiminished and he insists on it being shared george has put him onto this indian music You're not listening, are you? He shouts after 20 minutes of the record. (laughs) It's amazing, this. So cool. Don't the Indians hear cool to you? Are you listening? This music (laughs) is thousands of years old. It makes me laugh. The British going over there and telling them what to do. Quite amazing. And he switched on the television set. This is what I mean when I say you can see glimpses of his vulnerability there. He's he's less interested in listening to the music and far more interested in confirming his own enthusiasm for it by watching Maureen Cleve's reaction.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. This reminds me of the anecdote of, you know, John, uh, when he was young, like the worst thing that Mimi could do to John was to ignore ignore him. him. Like, don't ignore me, Mimi. And and so you get the sense that for John, it's like attention, but John's self-centeredness is so offset by there is a generosity of spirit of wanting to share whatever he, like, in some ways it makes me laugh because yes, John, you are not the first person to uh, experience or find joy in any of these things. And the way that John shares things is always that way. It's like, yeah. nobody's ever figured this stuff out before, but, but there is something so sweet about, When he finds joy, he wants other people to experience it too. And it's so charming that he is so excited by things, you know? Yeah,
1: that's right. Maureen Cleave, I think, recognizes that charm where the journalist who goes to see him at Savile Row in um, mid-69 and is incredibly critical of him, she doesn't. She also takes this slightly parental critical tone but she She only uses it to admonish and to judge him, whereas Cleve recognizes that uh, along with some of John's naivete comes a great deal of boyish charm.
0: oh yeah, absolutely, and i I absolutely love this about John too. It's so infectious, his enthusiasm is so infectious John wants her to be enjoying it both to reinforce that this is cool and for her also to have a good time, you know?
1: Yeah, because he can't enjoy it unless she's enjoying it too. (laughs) Exactly. So so after 20 minutes, he switches it off and puts the TV on instead.
0: (laughs) Do you enjoy this now? (laughs) Exactly.
1: Experience has sown few seeds of doubt in him. Not that his mind is closed, but it's closed round whatever he believes at the time. (laughs) that is my maybe my favorite description of John Lennon that comes out of this perhaps even more than the Henry VIII (laughs) one he doesn't have a closed mind except in as much as it closes around whatever his current enthusiasm is So, so true
0: so true I have written critically important to John Lennon that statement could not have been written Uh, more affectionately because Mm. that is the most positive way to spin John and Mm. and it's true too John is incredibly Mm open-minded about what he wants to be open-minded about yeah the problem is is that he closes his mind about anything else that he doesn't want to be open-minded about you know
1: yeah yeah he does jump in with both feet whether it's the Maharishi or um, final screen therapy or Klein Klein or uh, lysergic acid or, you know, in like 1977, 78, um, Evangelical Christianity. Uh, All of these things become ideas that he's so open to but which his mind kind of closes itself around for a period of time. So true. Well,
0: yes. What matters to John in that moment, is the only thing that is important. It again reinforces this self-centeredness of John. If he's learning anybody who isn't exactly on that page is bad, you know what I mean? Or if at that moment, if he is convinced that Alan Klein is going to save them, then anybody who doesn't believe that is an idiot. And he is close to the idea that maybe he's wrong. And, and, And what I love about John is that, he moves, he's movable, you know what I mean? Like, mm. it's not like he gets set in his ways, he evolves. Yeah. And sometimes he admits when he doesn't often admit that he's wrong, but he actually does evolve, mm. you know, but it's, it's an incredible statement. And I think for me, the one that it pertains to the most is, is the client situation.
1: Mm. Yeah. It must've been that like, until you mentioned client, I didn't put him in that category of John's enthusiasms, but he totally belongs in that category
0: yeah well, when you think about it. I mean, they've had so many successes and and this this first point is really important too. Experience has sown few seeds of doubt in him. you know the the fact that John actually has succeeded and been right about a lot of things, and that's the same with Paul too actually you know later on in life, both of these men kind of I think it hurt by the fact that they had so much success at first. You know, Paul is constantly like, well, nobody told us we could do Sergeant Pepper. And it's like, well, yeah, Paul, but you can't do that for the rest of your life. And it's the same with John. You know, so in some ways, John is right to believe in himself. But this idea, not that his mind is close, but it's close around whatever he believes at that time. She makes different points about George that George can be very close-minded, but she says that George is very immovable, you know, where you get the sense that John, in that moment is immovable, but then he does move.
1: Yeah, that's right. It also reminds me of that popular belief that... I don't know, John is a sort of a, a driving force or an ideas man, the the generator of the Beatles' energy, and Paul is this container into which it's put. This suggests that it's more complex than that. If John's mind is incredibly malleable uh, and can close around and support and contain and yes. whatever he believes in that time, John is the container as well, don't you think? That's
0: right, that's right. And if you look at this period... Paul talks about like he's out in the world bringing these ideas to the group. And then I think that what John is able to do is to champion these ideas. Like we just talked about in that paragraph before, is that his enthusiasm is contagious and he champions it. Like whatever he learns, he goes on blast. And it's like the greatest thing in the world. John goes big in whatever he's on. So I agree with you. And I love that point. And that's why they're so hard to define, and why I bristle so much about trying to codify what each of them is, you know? Yeah. reminds me of you and I did a very deep dive into the St. Regis article which will come out at some point <laughs> <laughs> it will come out It's just it will so come binge. out at the same
1: time as uh, Carnival of Light is released
0: <laughs> no it will come out before that hopefully it is just unwieldy but it is very interesting so it will come out but one of the things in um, that interview is that John and Yoko talk about George being very close-minded and I found this interesting is thinking about that article. And, and what I find sometimes frustrating about John and Yoko is they make the point that, well, George is very smart about fashion, but he's very close-minded and Paul, you know, they said Paul is very smart, but he doesn't want to know. And so they kind of position themselves as the fountain of truth and open mindedness. But in some ways, you know, that I always find them very close-minded to everything that is not on their radar at this mm. point. Like, they're yeah. not trying to understand what Paul and, and Linda are doing. You know, that they're, they're very close to that. They're not trying to understand where George is at at that point. So I do think that this statement is really important about John, too, is that John can be very laser focused and close-minded to anything that he's not interested in at that mm-hmm. moment. You know what I mean?
1: Yes, I do. He can be uh, intolerant and dismissive of whatever doesn't match his enthusiasms. At exactly,
0: different point. exactly. Okay, onwards to this very important statement. Okay,
1: here we go. Which in some ways is the, the part of this interview I want to talk about the least.
0: Me too. I mean. This is okay. the least interesting, oh, excellent. <laughs> Maybe we can just Perfect. read it and
1: move on, we'll see. <laughs> Christianity will go, he said. It will vanish and shrink. I needn't argue about that. I'm right and I will be proved right. We're more popular than Jesus now. I don't know which will go first, rock and roll or Christianity. Jesus was all right, but his disciples were thick and ordinary. It's them twisting it that ruins it for me. He is reading extensively about religion. Anything in that that you want to pick up on? Or has it been kicked to death, this one little quote?
0: It does come off as conversational. You know, when I was reading this, it was like, I can imagine him and Maureen walking around the house talking about things. And then this is John grandstanding uh, and being provocative about his opinions. Like that's how it reads to me.
1: Yeah. One point I'd make about this Christianity bit uh, and you're welcome to disagree with me on this, is that I think sometimes when Paul has tried to defend John yep. for making this, he slightly gets the tone of the comment wrong. So um, Paul often says that John meant it as a very pro-religion comment. Hey, yeah, yeah, But he said... Um... He said oh I don't know what's wrong with the church at the moment the bills are bigger than Jesus Christ you know like they're not building Jesus enough they ought to do more like gospel and this stuff and well that was taken out of context over in America I think no he doesn't he does it. he's not trying to be pro-Christianity here he's actually being kind of casually dismissive or um or uh disinterested in Christianity when he says, it'll go, it'll vanish, it'll shrink. We needn't argue about that. I'll I'll be proved right about that. (laughs) There's there's nothing pro-Christian in that sentiment.
0: Well, okay, I agree with you, but I sort of understand what Paul is talking about. So, you know, first of all, it it sounds like he's being provocative and cocky about a subject that he's reading right now, rather than a well-considered, like, (laughs) it's like, I don't think that John meant to make a pronouncement about the state of religion. To me, he yeah, I agree. Of, it's kind of like a a dinner conversation and John's being provocative with her and, and wants to argue the subject, you know?
1: Yeah, yeah. I think Paul, one thing I'll say about Paul's defense is that even if he gets the tone of it slightly wrong, I sense that Paul understands John is just being contrary.
0: He, exactly. he doesn't actually really
1: mean what he's saying.
0: Exactly. And so, first of all, I think that John is being just provocative here. And mm. he, it's it's it, this is not John's TED Talk or, you know, it wasn't meant <laughs> to be that. But the, the other thing is he is not necessarily comparing the Beatles to Christianity or Jesus. He's just talking about fads, which I can Mm. see how that was disconcerting. Like I think that's really the provocative element of what he's saying here, is he's saying that Christianity is not the underpinning of our entire society. He's Mm. saying it is a fad or something, an idea that people will embrace, like rock and roll, and that will Past. At the beginning, she's talked about how all of these journalists have said, Well, when is the bubble going to burst? And he's sort of now applying that to religion and saying that. Two will pass if
3: it had said we're more uh, television is more popular than jesus i might have got away with it <laughs> you know, but as i just happened to be talking to a friend i used the word beetles as a remote thing not as what i think as beetles as though those other beetles like other people see us and i just said they are are having more, in- more influence on kids and things than anything else, including Jesus. But I said it in that way, which is the wrong way, yeah. Well, yeah. well some teenagers have said, uh, have repeated your statements, that the Beatles, I like the Beatles more than Jesus Christ. What do you think about that? Well, originally I was, un- I was pointing out that fact in reference to England, that we meant more to kids than Jesus did, or religion at that time. I wasn't knocking it or putting it down, I was just saying it as a fact. And it sort of, it is true, especially more for England than here. You know, I'm not saying that we're better or greater or comparing us with Jesus Christ as a person or God as a thing or whatever it is. You know, I would just said what I said and it was wrong or was taken wrong. And now it's all this.
0: What? And I think that that was the really scary, unsettling element. Of what he's saying here. Not that the US actually reacted to that. You know, they seem to be reacting to the arrogance of comparing themselves to Jesus, which frankly, he did not do.
1: No, I, I completely agree. I think we are probably saying the same thing if we're coming at it from slightly different perspectives. I agree that he's he's um, conceiving of Christianity as something faddish. And that's what I mean when, when I criticize Paul for claiming that John is being pro-Christian here. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I totally agree that at no point in this comment, is he inflating himself to Jesus Christ like proportions
0: the way that i would connect what paul is saying is i know that in the i believe this was in many years from now paul talks about first of all he talks about this guy that he thinks might be jesus stopping by and you know you know that anecdote about he invited him to the studio cuz he was like well you never know so just to be on the safe side yeah, he's, yeah, yeah. To jesus but there's this other I think it's a pastor that stops by and he has no clue who Paul or John, he doesn't know who Paul is, but he makes his way into Paul's house as everybody could do in those days, apparently. So he waited in line, you know, with all the other people and got in front of Paul, uh, you know, which also sounds like a, a royal setup. You know, he got his um, his minute with Paul and he put forward this, his desire for the Beatles to come and appear in, you know, to his congregation. And and I guess the point was that he thought that the Beatles showing up would make religion more interesting. And Paul said, no, we, we won't do that. And, and the guy sort of backed off and said, oh, I'm sorry to have bothered you. And he said, well, it's, it's not that we won't do it. It's that we don't believe necessarily. We're not sure we believe, which did have integrity. But I think his point was, but you should make it more interesting. Like, that seems to be what Paul was saying is that we are not going to do that. But if you want people to be going to church, you should try and make it more relevant. And I think in some ways, I sort of get how Paul is connecting what John is saying, because he's saying it will pass. We're more popular, We're more popular than Jesus. Exactly. And, and, and I think he's saying that people are more passionate about us. This is a problem. And that's where I see it as sort of connecting to what Paul is saying, is that I think John is saying, we're more popular than Jesus. You need to do something because it's going to pass. And and I I don't think he's weighing in one way or the other about whether it's a good thing or a bad thing that it will pass, but I do get underneath that. There's the sense that it's not interesting enough. People aren't passionate enough about it, you know?
1: Mm. Yeah, no, I'll concede that happily. Maybe that's all that needs to be said about this little section, though. (laughs) It's had too much emphasis over the years.
0: Yeah, I mean, the thing is, this whole profile is littered with relics of John's interest in religion. So this was said lightly and in passing. But I think that John does have a genuine interest in religion and in Christianity. You know, in the 70s, he re-embraces it, he wears a cross. So it's kind of unfortunate that... I think John is much more thoughtful on the subject than it necessarily comes across here, you know?
1: Yeah, part of the problem of the, the slight flippancy or the lightness of the comment yes. makes it seem as though he's uninterested yes. in the subject when he's there's evidence in this article that he's deeply interested in Exactly,
0: exactly. And so it rings true. Like when he said that he wasn't anti-religion, that was true, you know? And so... It must have been very frustrating to him because it really was taken out of context. It was,
1: it's the, just the thick disciples twisting it that ruins it for me.
0: <laughs> exactly. Although this hit a nerve in the U.S., this wasn't anticipated to be the really provocative statement. You know, the, this, this blew up when it was published in Datebook but they led with a picture of Paul on the cover and they led with Paul's comment about racism. It was the top Mm. comment. Mm. And so, you know, the fact that this hit a nerve, I don't know why it did. I don't know if it was timing or if it was John's actual persona that led people to pay more attention to what he said, but it very well could have been Paul that was in the hot seat about what he said, because they anticipated clearly from the way that they positioned it, that Paul's comment on racism in the U.S. was going to be, you know, the more provocative The lightning thing. rod for the criticism, yeah. yeah. Exactly.
1: Yeah, exactly. and it's, it's, I think it's reasonable to say that by this point in 66, the press or popular culture or something is looking for reasons to tear strips off the Beatles. Yep. And so they, they found one in what John Lennon said about Christianity.
0: Exactly. But another impact of this was that I think it really brought all the Beatles together. And, and you know, it, it really showed the unity and solidarity of the Beatles and the love that they had for each other in that they really rallied behind John. Yeah. But I think Paul in particular really stepped up at this point. And so, you know, how we just discussed it. I think that there was a little bit of, little bit of an issue between John and Paul in this time when they were living in different places, a little bit of insecurity, a little bit of issue between them. But I think Paul really stepped it up and was very protective. And I personally looked at a lot of the footage of this tour and Paul physically stands in front of John so often. It's like he's literally providing a human yeah. shield to John in interviews. And I think that that meant a lot to John.
1: Yeah, no, there's, there's many examples of the fact that it is as bitchy as they could be to each other within their own bubble, the moment that, you know, someone tries to intrude it, they yeah. will close ranks against that, that person, unless that person's Alan <laughs> Klein.
0: Exactly, exactly. So I think this um, was a period or began a new period of intense closeness for John and Paul going forward. And so I think that that was a positive outcome of this. Yeah. So...
2: There are places I remember
1: He is now twenty-five. He lives in a large, heavily panelled, heavily carpeted mock Tudor house, set on a hill with his wife Cynthia and his son Julian. There is a cat called after his aunt Mimi, and a purple dining room. Julian is three. He may be sent to the Lycée in London. Seems the only place for him in his position, said his father, surveying him dispassionately. I feel sorry for him, though. I couldn't stand ugly people, even when I was five. Lots of the ugly ones are foreign, aren't they? <laughs> it's like Ringo with his pigs.
0: <laughs> Although worse. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, okay, so um, do you have anything to say about this?
1: Um, well, because of all we've said about the way John's mind closes itself around things, I'm, I'm tempted to to read... Her description of his house, almost like it's an extension of his mind, heavily paneled, heavily carpeted, closing itself around him in this kind of bubble-like way, this impenetrable way until he decides to open the door.
0: (laughs) True. So there's two things. Julian is three. He may be sent to the Lycee in London. Seems the only place for him in his position. Again, this idea of if John sees himself as royalty... It's like that extends to Julian. He kind of treats him like the Dauphin as well. Yeah. You know, her word dispassionately instead of mm. empathetically, you know, like I wanted my baby to be, you know, it's kind of like, well, he is the son of a king. So the mm. only place for him is in a ly- lycée. you know, one would think that John was born to this.
1: Yeah, he has that that casual way with the world, as though everything as it is beck and call, that seems to be a, a, a hallmark of royalty, doesn't it?
0: Exactly. Julian is basically just like a little princeling. And then his second line, oh my God, in the light of how much he raged against everybody in 1968 that you know, had anything to say about Yoko, which was absolutely racist and horrible, John is just as bad here, you know, saying that I couldn't stand ugly people even when I was five. Lots of the ugly ones are foreign, aren't they? It's just like, oh, my God, John, (laughs) you're saying this to the country.
1: Yeah. And in, in such conflict with things he says elsewhere, like he's already made a point about the presumptuous... Um, qualities right. of the, the British ruling class in exactly, India, exactly. and now he turns 180 cool. degrees and castigates anyone who's not British as ugly and foreign.
0: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. There's another. There's another interview where he said something similar, and he felt sorry for Julian and, and having to go to school with foreigners. So he considered sending him. To be taught by Jane and Paul, <laughs> 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 who, who were apparently both smart and attractive enough to teach his son, you know. Right. But, um, but yeah, it's just it's shocking. But it's a good it's good to be flagging this because John Lennon, again, two years later, is going to be close minded to anybody who doesn't immediately embrace Yoko. And mm. again, I'm not defending them. I'm just saying that John Lennon himself displayed some of these traits, you know, in 1966.
1: That's right. You know, racism doesn't exist until John Lennon discovers it.
0: (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Again, the nice thing about John is he says stupid shit like this. And within two years, his life partner is Japanese. And so John continues to grow and open up. The problem with John is that he doesn't, seem to have an empathy to be like, ah, I was like you two years ago. Come with mm, me. Mm. You know what I mean? No,
1: he's he's judgmental of those who demonstrate qualities that he himself demonstrated multiple times.
0: Well, and maybe, maybe that's actually a good insight that John kind of is reacting to himself when he gets mm. really angry with people. You know how sometimes people are most judgmental of things they themselves do badly. Maybe, yeah. maybe that's...
1: yeah it's like I I watch my my son and he is contemptuous of people for not knowing things that he learned five minutes ago (laughs) that's another one of John's childlike qualities too I think
0: right okay well how old did you say your son was (laughs) six okay yes well John shares this with him (laughs) (laughs) It also
1: reminds me, when we talk about him having this entitled royal sort of quality to him, do you remember that story of him coming back to Liverpool after the first Hamburg trip, and it's about midnight, and he doesn't have a key to Mendips, and so he just, he stands on the doorway and yells at the sleeping Mimi, I'll have you know I'm starving, woman.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure he didn't send a note or anything, but that's what I mean. That's how John operates. Remember how he used to get really mad at Cynthia for not knowing what he wanted for dinner? I think this (laughs) is actually a a trait of John is he's so self-centered. And the problem with John is he's so exceptional that stuff does happen. If he wasn't so exceptional, he would have learned a lot more quickly. Mm. That he can't just exist in his, <laughs> his mind. You know what I mean? But he because he is, he has people who are willing to do things for him. Yeah. But I also think this feeds into John and Paul's problem. When John talks about going through murder, which does start at this point, and he's like, Paul was, was full of confidence. I think that John also rages about the fact that Paul doesn't know. Mm. And so this self-centeredness kind of is a big problem in his life.
1: Totally. We did a speedy tour of the house, Julian panting along behind, clutching a large porcelain Siamese cat. (laughs) John swept past the objects in which he has lost interest. That's Sydney, a suit of armor. That's a hobby I had for a week, a room full of model racing cars. Sin won't let me get rid of that, a fruit machine. In the sitting room are eight little green boxes with winking red lights. He bought them as Christmas presents, but never got round to giving them away. They wink for a year. One imagines him sitting there till next Christmas surrounded by the little <laughs> winking boxes.
0: <laughs> uh, um, okay, so first of all, I just have to comment on Julian. I mm. mean, it, it makes me laugh because the words she uses, panting, and clutching a, not a stuffed animal like a highly inappropriate toy <laughs> a large porcelain Siamese cat is you get the sense that Julian is of secondary concern mm. and like we said last time Julian is around like J- Julian is so cute he's like desperately following his dad around you know there's something really yeah. sweet to that and it's not like John doesn't like him to be around you know he's around and John's fine with him being around but you sort of get the sense that it's secondary. Like John is not, because if he was most worried about Julian, they would be going at Julian's speed rather than Julian panting.
1: Well, that's right.
0: You know, he would have a stuffed animal rather than a highly inappropriate porcelain, probably (laughs) figure, you know?
1: No, uh, John gives the stuffed animal to Ringo. But yeah, I do know exactly what you mean. A lot of parents talk about how when the child is born, um, it's no longer about you. It's about them. Yeah, uh, But you don't quite get that <laughs> sense here. It's still very much about John. I always think that when I get to the end of this article and he's talking about how I'm not. I'm not staying in Weybridge. This is just a bus stop. I don't have my real house yet. I thought maybe it's more appropriate to talk about not just you but the rest of your family <laughs> as well at our house.
0: <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But we can be a bit judgmental. But John's 25. He probably was way too young to yeah, have a child. That's so you true. You know. And and as we said last time, I get the sense that John is a loving. Father, I think the problem is John is too self-centered still Mm. to actually give Julian the attention that he probably requires. Nevertheless, Julian is around and and it's a cute addition to the scene. Is John such an eccentric, which the rest of this paragraph really describes john in my mind from the 66 67 period especially 67 john with his like eccentric little mustache which i love taking lsd sitting in a room full of boxes that flash writing i am the walrus that i i find so intriguing and interesting
1: Mm. Are the little light boxes a reference to a Magic Alex creation?
0: I think so. I think that that is the first mention of, of Magic Alex. They yeah. mention that in Get Back, right? Remember George explains that?
1: Yeah. Well, it's entirely appropriate then that Ma- Magic Alex would guarantee the boxes to last <laughs> for a year, but they're already starting to break.
0: Exactly. It's March, by the way. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and it's and it's so that John buys them for people and then never actually gets around (laughs) to giving them to people. Ringo seems to buy all these things and enjoy them. Whereas John, you get this sense of filling a void, like John's running to fill Mm. something. Mm. I like this for a day and then I like this for a day and then I moved on and now I have a house full of things that don't don't work and oh my God, it's like a fun fair in here, you know?
1: Yeah, like he's, John is the coyote chasing after the roadrunner. But every time he, he catches him, he doesn't know what to do next. <laughs> it's like there, there is right, an episode right, right. Of, of that cartoon where he does catch the roadrunner and then he holds up a sign saying, You always wanted me to do this, what do I do now? That's John <laughs> right. having got all of the things he thought that, you know, would fulfill him.
0: <laughs> right. Instead you get insanity, the house littered with things. She uses the word restless in this, and and Ray Connolly, who wrote a book uh, on John and spent a lot of time with John, actually called uh, it a restless life. Like that was the name of the book, and you do get the sense that John is buying these things to be fulfilled, you know, mm. and he's just acquiring things. It's not doing the job, right?
1: Mm, that's right. Yeah, I could I could reference a lot of French philosophy here. You you read Jacques Lacan. He has Pergus. this extraordinary um, theory about the uh, the objet petit a, which he defines as the object of desire, which is always in its disappearing mode. It's yes. like you know the um, the the Asprey leather-bound um, goods, or the pair of shoes, or the dress, or whatever it is you want. It's always the object of desire when it's behind plate glass in the shop window. But when you actually buy it and take it home, it seems to have been robbed of whatever quality made you desire it in the first place. And that's what John is experiencing now, buyer remorse.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's true. And I think that this was with a lot of things in their life. You know, John talks about the ease of being able to have women when they Mm. get famous. Like all of a sudden, all of this is accessible to them. And so then it's finding, well, what actually will fulfill me? Yeah. Although shopping again from May Pang's book she um provides detail about how much joy John and Yoko get from shopping. This is a a a lifelong habit of theirs that yeah. that brings them joy. And certainly I mean I must say I I I appreciate his love of shopping.
1: Yeah. Yeah, me too. It's one of his humanizing qualities, isn't
0: it? Yeah. The thing is, is that this list of things that she mentions here, like it, like I said, in 67 and going onwards, like John's very into fashion. But this list of his acquisitions are so weird. That <laughs> it, it does actually create the idea, the the sense that John is highly eccentric, right?
1: Yeah, that's right. He's just buying the, he's amassing this um, John Soane's like museum of objet d'art. Exactly, none, of which, exactly. none of which actually does anything. <laughs>
0: That's very funny. The idea of like the Museum of John.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. He pauses over objects he still fancies: a huge altar crucifix of a Roman Catholic nature with IHS on it, a pair of crutches, a present from George, an enormous Bible he bought in Chester, his gorilla suit. <laughs> yeah, the giant Catholic iconography. Um, what, what do you think the crutches represent? Are they are they in joke of some kind?
0: I don't know because I, like it. it, it it could be given, you know, their horror, especially John's horror of all the people around them in their concerts. So mm, maybe. especially the fact that it comes from George, it makes me think it's a joke. Yeah. On the other hand, John's so weird, that who knows, he may have always wanted a pair of crutches. <laughs> so I don't know,
1: <laughs>
0: I have no way of judging. What do you think?
1: Yeah, I, I can't figure it out either. I, I, I did some looking around because it's it's a little bit later i think it's june 66 dylan releases a song called fourth time around which is often taken to be a a nasty parody of norwegian wood and one of the lines in it is i never asked for your crutch now don't ask for mine which people think is quite a pointed um line about the beatles sort of taking part of dylan's aesthetic uh, but the timing isn't right. The song wasn't released yet, so it can't be a reference to that.
0: Oh, my God. Talk about egos. Yeah, I don't know. I do think all of his Christian iconography around his place is interesting. Does does reflect a deep-seated and ongoing curiosity, mm. an obsession with the subject, if nothing else, you know?
1: Yeah, anyone who pursues... Truth, like it's some sort of holy grail, has that religious or or devotional impulse in him, and John is certainly not exempt from that.
0: And 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 like I said, he doesn't um, he doesn't walk away from religion; he re-embraces it in the seventies. That's right. Okay, so the gorilla suit is something I want to talk about, (laughs) but but please read the next paragraph first. Okay.
1: (gasps) I thought I might need a gorilla suit," he said. (laughs) He seems sad about it. (laughs) Uh, i've only worn it twice i thought i might pop it on in the summer and drive around in the ferrari we were all going to get them and drive around in them but i was the only one who did (laughs) I've been thinking about it. If I didn't wear the head, it would make an amazing fur coat with legs. (laughs) I would like a fur coat, but I've never run into any. Don't worry, John, I know a Japanese artist who can tell you where to buy fur coats.
0: Exactly, and eventually you'll have a whole room for them.
1: That's right.
0: Do you know the Dakota, Uh, they apparently had a fur room?
1: Yes, that's right. Um, And Elton John rewrote the lyrics to Imagine to reflect this. Uh, (laughs) Imagine six apartments. I wonder if you can. One is full of fur coats.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I love the gorilla suit so much. It it, it is so representative of so many things to me first of all what what an eccentric and weirdo J- john is that he wants this gorilla <laughs> suit but the, the fact the fact that he wants them to do it together yeah is the important part like john as much as he lives in his own little bubble he wants the other beetles to be with him if he's a king there's three other kings or if he's a prince he's got there's three other princes and he wants them to play In the song, Real Love, John talks about his plans and schemes. I mean, this is just John plotting. And John doesn't give up. He comes up with Greece. Let's all move to Greece and live in that house. With John especially, that he thought that they would all move out there and then they'd all play together. And then he found himself actually quite alone in his place when he isn't going for dinner somewhere. You know what I mean? Like a little bit isolated you get the sense that he's like I was into this I was the committed one yeah. I'm the only one that actually did this you know and it's this his grand schemes for them playing around and maybe the gorilla suit was them being able to go well his idea of them being anonymous although that probably would not have made them anonymous yeah but, that's interesting yeah. That,
1: that's almost revealing of the way uh, of a difference in um John and Paul they're both toying with um, anonymity and disguise but John does it by putting on a gorilla suit something which is going to draw attention in a exactly. very different way. no one's going to think there's a beetle underneath it but it's you'll still turn your head and look at it exactly Paul does it by trying to make himself look as inconspicuous as possible
0: I mean that really in a nutshell is the two of them I mean Paul's Paul's normal persona is his his attempt to do this whereas John does actually inhabit other personas, but they're always attention getting
1: I also like that this is also revealing of John's impractical, unrealistic (laughs) side, especially when he, his fantasy is not just having the gorilla suit, but driving around in it. And you think maybe with someone who has, has your issues with with vision, putting on a gorilla's mask, (laughs) which is gonna limit your vision even further, behind the wheel of a Ferrari is not a good thing.
0: (laughs) I laughed at that too. It's like, okay, John, you can't even drive the Ferrari. Never mind, <laughs> in a gorilla suit. But you know, these were his grand grand schemes. There was a, an interview with George who talked about the fact that he and John used to race their Ferraris, but he used to drive really slowly
2: <laughs> because he
0: was so worried about John in his Ferrari because he couldn't see. So, but John has these beautiful dreams. And again, it's it's so telling that he wanted them to do this together. He wanted them to have fun and play together. Yeah. You know. And then it's such a sad statement. I was the only one who did. Mm. And then and then he's been thinking about it. Like he spent some mental energy on this. So I've been thinking about it. And if I didn't wear the head, it would make an amazing fur coat. And again, that to me is. John had his both weirdest and most original and eccentric. I mean, who else would think that?
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's true. A fur coat with legs. It's such a strange way of thinking about the body part of a gorilla suit.
0: (laughs) But he is also somebody who got married in a human hair coat. So... (laughs) (laughs) So, John is a weirdo. And, but the also the amazing thing about John is he isn't original. Like, I mean, the way John's mind works is just like because he doesn't really know how things work, he just is free to play with, like, well, that would be an okay. Fur coat, I guess a full suit fur coat, but it's yeah. Funny. You
1: were, when we were doing the Ringo episode, you were talking about how John's view of the world—it's almost like he's an alien having been dropped on planet Earth. Yes, that—that's an example of it. An alien would look at a gorilla suit and say, "Why does your fur coat have legs?"
0: <laughs> <laughs> exactly, or or an alien would say, "Why wouldn't it have legs?"
1: Exactly. It, yeah. Yes,
0: I guess it's interesting to think of the fact that. He really didn't have the opportunity to experience running around London in the way. I think I kind of take it for granted how much Paul probably learned mm. being with the Ashers. But also, John's just mm. such an original, too. Just totally. <laughs> this is where I get a tinge of, I get the sense that John wants a playmate, You know, like he's got a house, you get the sense of John sitting in his room with his blinking lights and looking at Sydney and then, you know, getting into his gorilla suit all by himself and then thinking, I'd like to drive, but I can't really drive. John is up for fun, but except when he goes to Ringo's and when they're doing coupley stuff, that that John sort of needs a playmate.
1: Yeah. Well, he has a a three-year-old one right there. If only he (laughs) would turn around and play with him. (laughs)
0: Yes, and maybe that would be better than the porcelain Siamese cat. <laughs> <laughs> For Julian. Anyways, okay, onwards.
1: One feels that his possessions, to which he adds daily, have got the upper hand. All the tape recorders, the five television sets, the cars, the telephones, of which he knows not a single number. <laughs> the moment he approaches a switch, it fuses. Six of the winking boxes, guaranteed to last till next Christmas, have gone funny already. His cars, the Rolls, the Mini Cooper, black wheels, black windows, the Ferrari being painted black, puzzled him. Then there's the swimming pool, the trees sloping away beneath it. Nothing like what I ordered, he says resignedly. He wanted the bottom to be a mirror. It's an amazing household, he said. None of my gadgets really work except the gorilla suit. That's the <laughs> only suit that fits me. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Uh, Well, this is, this just builds on what we were just saying here is that, that John has these grand dreams, but because John is so helpless in a way, you know, that he, he's not somebody who actually will do these things. He has these dreams and then has other people carrying them out Yeah, um, that he can't fix any of these things, which fair enough. I mean, he does. Like the idea of a pull with a mirror on the bottom is pretty freaking cool. And that's what I mean about the the gorilla suit (laughs) with the feet cut off is that again is pretty, John is pretty amazing in terms of his inventiveness. Yeah, He's got this grand imagination, Mm. but he doesn't always have the ability to translate his ideas or the patience to, like John probably could have, gotten the guys to 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 go driving in their Ferraris if he would have spearheaded it, but he doesn't yeah. you know he probably could have done something with his pool if he would have worked with his contractors, but he doesn't you know
1: that's right, yeah, what you say about him having these impulses and desires, these grand visions, but uh, I suppose um being frustrated at um, his inability to translate them into reality it it makes you more aware of how important both Paul and George Martin were for being the ones who could do that musically.
0: Yes. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. That he, John can come in with the idea that's the equivalent of a pool with a mirror on the bottom. That's still an amazing idea, you know, but they could do that. And also one gets the sense how important Brian was probably to John's running of his life. But again, you do get the sense, like when you, when we read, George or Ringo's worlds they seem to be calm (laughs) and when you get you get the sense that things are kind of out of control in John's world and also um, Cynthia really isn't a presence like he says Cynthia won't let him get rid of the fruit machine but but that's the only real mention of her she's so She's non-existent in this profile yeah. in the way that like, when you think of how present Maureen was mm. and, and I don't think that Cynthia is not present in her house, but maybe from John's perspective, his worldview, she isn't, or else it's because John and Maureen have a flirtation. And so he's just not really including her. I don't know. What do yeah. You
1: think? I, I think it would, I don't know that much about Cynthia, but I suspect she's the type of person who wouldn't insert herself into the article. But at the same time, nor does John think to include her at any point. Right,
0: right. Well, and I think that's that's telling too. You know, like Ringo says... Uh, a present off my wife. and hmm. and Maureen observes them constantly. But again, if uh, Maureen and John are having a flirtation, then John's probably not going to be, you know, having Cynthia with him every minute of the day, you know? that's right. so so it's hard to tell whether um Cynthia's lack of presence is because she really wasn't present or because, um John has orchestrated it this way because of his flirtation with Maureen, you know?
2: Mm.
0: it's funny because they talk about john and julian the the adams family showing up for dinner at, at ringo's and then everything's in black you know his black wheels and black windows and all of his cars are painted black and yet i don't picture john being in black that often actually no you know? in this
1: period i i think of him in in a kind of a lot of um moleskin or, or suede browns yes, for some reason. Yes, I do
0: too. I do too. So, or like on tour, he always had the white pants or the white jacket, yeah, you know.
1: stripes seem to be a big feature of this period. Yeah. yeah.
0: I don't know. So, I mean, yeah. maybe this was his like three months of everything being black. You know what else actually struck me in this is this word puzzle him. Mm-hmm. She mentions this a couple times. Like she talks about his cars, puzzle him and later on she talks about a mustache intrigues him Mm. and it's kind of like you one gets the sense that john thinks about these things but never quite resolves them (laughs) you know yeah like they are mysteries to john that he's interested in but not enough to quite figure out
1: that's right he never really becomes a confident driver does he no. so yeah the idea of cars as either status symbols or pieces of machinery are interesting and appealing but in a in a way that keeps them slightly at arm's length
0: yes yes and again there's something a little bit childlike about it and maybe hmm. maybe he likes it that way he likes the little mystery you know there's a little bit of like magic to me and him finding these cars, you know?
1: Yeah. He would, he would talk later about LSD and say that, um, one of the great revelations was the way it confirmed to him that a Lewis Carroll like surreal world could be, uh, expressed, projected outward, because to him that had been the way he experienced reality for his entire life. And you get a bit of a sense of that here, don't you? You
0: do, you do. And that's what I mean about these words are really interesting, because you get the sense that John is walking around the world. Maybe he was high for this interview. But you get the sense that he's walking around the world just looking at it through these different eyes. And it's like, wow. And that's why nothing seems as normal as it does for other people.
1: Yeah. Does the gorilla suit fit him because he's put on weight or because it's the only one appropriate to his personality or both?
0: (laughs) I didn't know. I didn't know if that was a, if that was alluding to his weight. Um, You know, it's funny, I I looked up a a picture of John from this time, and this really was his, his heaviest. But I actually think John looks so good. I, I mean, I'm sure he didn't like having the extra weight, especially, you know, hanging out next to George every day. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't be great. But but his face looks fantastic at this time. You know, it's, it's a pity.
1: Yeah. It, she's right to say that it, it, filling out a little bit, it, it softens his features. And when he's at his most skeletal, they, they're quite severe,
0: Yes, absolutely. It's unfortunate that anybody ever made... I mean, John was never in the slightest bit overweight. He was just maybe uh, heavier than he was when he was 22. But this is like, he looked like a man, you know? Yeah.
1: No, yeah. All of the clothes are tailored quite tight. And so, when you see a sort of a full body shot, you can see he's wearing a normal sized pair of trousers.
0: Paul doesn't look super thin either. I mean, they've been on tour nonstop. You know, mm. they're drinking and eating at two o'clock in the morning, and what you know, it's it's yeah. really probably not great for being fit. John is entering his LSD period. You know, that started in '65, although they were touring a lot. John is prone, as we'll see in in a second. Uh, to um, hyperbole
1: Mm. and
0: so you know I'm sure John did not do as many trips as has been suggested however he would have been doing some at this period and he starts to lose weight at this period I'm sure it's from being self-conscious but also just taking drugs and not eating you know and he starts to look I think he looks actually fantastic later in the year too
1: yeah yeah me too
0: the problem is he takes it too far And I think it becomes a bit of a lifelong issue, which is which is too bad, because he's always, always gorgeous. Yeah. And that concludes part one of the Cleve series interview with John Lennon. We will be back very soon with part two, and it is a wild ride as we continue to explore John's uniquely mad world in 1966. The swagger, the gadgets, the innocent eccentricity and arrogance are all still there as he talks about power, money, and the elusive etiquette of lunch. So please stay tuned. The episode will be out very soon. In the meantime, I will highlight some of John's best sartorial choices from 66 and 67 on Twitter. So uh, please check out the podcast Twitter account if you are interested. I will now leave you with Duncan Driver reading the entire cleat profile on John.
1: How does a beetle live? John Lennon lives like this by Maureen Cleave It was this time three years ago that the Beatles first grew famous. Ever since then, observers have anxiously tried to gauge whether their fame was on the wax or on the wane. They foretold the fall of the old Beatles, they searched diligently for the new Beatles, which was as pointless as looking for the new Big Ben. At last, they have given up. The Beatles' fame is beyond question. It has nothing to do with whether they are rude or polite, married or unmarried, 25 or 45, whether they appear on top of the Pops or do not appear on top of the Pops. They are well above any position even a rolling stone might jostle for. They are famous in the way that the Queen is famous. When John Lennon's Rolls Royce with its black wheels and its black windows goes past, people say, it's the Queen or it's the Beatles. With her, they share the security of a stable life at the top. They all tick over in the public esteem, she in Buckingham Palace, they in the Weybridge-Esher area. Only Paul remains in London. The Weybridge community consists of the three married Beatles. They live there among the wooded hills and the stockbrokers. They have not worked since Christmas, and their existence is secluded and curiously timeless. What day is it? John Lennon asks, with interest when you ring up with news from outside. The fans are still at the gates, but the Beatles see only each other. They are better friends than ever before. Ringo and his wife Maureen may drop in on John and Sin. John may drop in on Ringo. George and Patty may drop in on John and Sin, and they might all go round to Ringo's, by car, of course. Outdoors is for holidays. They watch films. They play rowdy games of buccaneer. They watch television till it goes off, often playing records at the same time. They while away the small hours of the morning, making mad tapes. Bedtimes and meal times have no meaning as such. We've never had time before to do anything but just be beetles, John Lennon said. He is much the same as he was before. He still peers down his nose, arrogant as an eagle, although contact lenses have righted the short sight that originally caused the expression. He looks more like Henry the Eighth ever now, than his face is filled out. He is just as imperious, just as unpredictable, indolent, disorganized, childish, vague, charming, and quick witted. He is still easygoing, still tough as hell. You never asked after Fred Lennon, he said, disappointed. Fred is his father. He emerged after they got famous. He was here a few weeks ago. It was only the second time in my life I'd seen him. I showed him the door. He went on cheerfully. I wasn't having him in the house. His enthusiasm is undiminished, and he insists on it being shared. George has put him on this Indian music. You're not listening, are you? He shouts after 20 minutes of the record. It's amazing, they're so cool. Don't Indians appear cool to you? Are you listening? The music is thousands of years old. It makes me laugh. The British going over there and telling them what to do. Quite amazing. And he switched on the television set. Experience has sown few seeds of doubt in him, not that his mind is closed, but it's closed round whatever he believes at the time. (laughs) Christianity will go, he said. It will vanish and shrink. I needn't argue about that. I'm right and I will be proved right. We're more popular than Jesus now. I don't know which will go first, rock and roll or Christianity. Jesus was all right, but all his disciples were thick and ordinary. It's them twisting it that ruins it for me. He is reading extensively about religion. He shops in lightning swoops on Aspreys these days, and there is some fine wine in his cellar, but he is still quite unselfconscious. He is far too lazy to keep up appearances, even if he had worked out what the appearances should be, which he has not. He is now twenty-five. He lives in a large, heavily panelled, heavily carpeted, mock Tudor house, set on a hill with his wife Cynthia and his son Julian. There is a cat called after his aunt Mimi in a purple dining room. Julian is three. He may be sent to the Lycee in London. Seems like the only place for him in his position, says his father, surveying him dispassionately. I feel sorry for him, though. I couldn't stand ugly people, even when I was five. Lots of the ugly ones are foreign, aren't they? We did a speedy tour of the house, Julian panting along behind, clutching a large porcelain Siamese cat. John swept past the objects in which he had lost interest. That's Sydney, a suit of armour. That's a hobby I had for a week, a room full of model racing cars. Sin won't let me get rid of that, a fruit machine. In the sitting room are eight little green boxes with winking red lights. He bought them as Christmas presents, but never got round to giving them away. They wink for a year. One imagines him sitting there till next Christmas, surrounded by these little winking boxes. He paused over objects he still fancies. A huge altar crucifix of a Roman Catholic nature with IHS on it. A pair of crutches, a present from George. An enormous Bible he bought in Chester. His gorilla suit. I thought I might need a gorilla suit, he said. He seemed sad about it. I've only worn it twice. I thought I might pop in in the summer and drive around in the Ferrari. We were all going to get them and drive around in them, but I was the only one who did. I've been thinking about it, and if I didn't wear the head, it would make an amazing fur coat with legs, you see. I would like a fur coat, but I've never run into any. One feels that his possessions, to which he adds daily, have got the upper hand. All the tape recorders, the five television sets, the cars, the telephones, of which he knows not a single number. The moment he approaches a switch, it fuses. Six of the winking boxes, guaranteed to last till next Christmas, have gone funny already. His cars, the Rolls, the Mini Cooper, black wheels, black windows, the Ferrari being painted black, puzzle him. There's the, Then there's the swimming pool, the trees sloping away beneath it. Nothing like what I ordered, he says resignedly. He wanted the bottom to be a mirror. It's an amazing household, he said. None of my gadgets really work, except the gorilla suit. That's the only suit that fits me. He is very keen on books will always ask what is good to read. He buys quantities of books, and these are kept tidily in a special room. He has Swift, Tennyson, Huxley, Orwell, costly leather-bound editions of Tolstoy, Oscar Wilde. Then there's Little Women, and all the William books from his childhood, and some unexpected volumes such as 41 Years in India by Field Marshal Lord Roberts, and Curiosities of Natural History by Francis T. Buckland, This last, with its chapter headings, Earless Cats, Wooden-legged People, the immortal Harvey's mother is right up his street. He approaches reading with a lively interest, untempered by too much formal education. I've read millions of books, he said. That's why I seem to know things. He is obsessed by Celts. I've decided I am a Celt, he said. I'm on Bodicea's side. All those bloody blue-eyed blondes chopping people up. I have an awful feeling wishing I was there. Not that not there with scabs and sores, but there through reading about it. The books don't give you much more than a paragraph about how they lived. I have to imagine that. He can sleep almost indefinitely. Is probably the laziest person in England. Physically lazy, he said. I don't mind writing or reading or watching or speaking, but sex is the only physical thing I can be bothered with anymore occasionally he is driven to London in the Rolls by an ex-Welsh guardsman called Anthony. Anthony has a moustache that intrigues him. The day I visit him, he has been invited to lunch in London, about which he was rather excited. Do you know how long lunch lasts? he asked. I've never been to lunch before. I went to a Lion's the other day and had egg and chips and a cup of tea. The waiters kept looking and saying, No, it isn't him, it can't be. He settled himself into the car and demonstrated the television, the folding bed, the refrigerator, the writing desk, the telephone. He has spent many fruitless hours on that telephone. I only once got through to a person, he said, and they were out. Anthony had spent the weekend in Wales. John asked if they'd kept a welcome for him on the hillside, and Anthony said they had. They discussed the possibility of an extension for the telephone. We had to call at the doctor's because John had a bit of a sea urchin in his toe. Don't want to be like Dorothy Dandridge, he said, dying of a splinter 50 years later. He added reassuringly that he had washed the foot in question. (laughs) We bowled along in a costly fashion through the countryside. Famous and loaded is how he describes himself now. They keep telling me I'm all right for money, but then I think I might have spent it all by the time I'm 40, so I keep going. That's why I started selling my cars. Then I changed my mind. They got them all back and a new one, too. I want the money just to be rich. The only other way of getting it is to be born rich. If you have money, that's power without having to be powerful. I often think that it's all a big conspiracy that the winners are the government and the people like us who have got the money. That joke about keeping the workers ignorant is still true. That's what they said about the Tories and the landowners and that. Then Labour were meant to educate the workers, but they don't seem to be doing that anymore. He has a morbid horror of stupid people. Famous and loaded as I am, I still have to meet soft people. It often comes into my mind that I'm not really rich. There are really rich people, but I don't know where they are. He finds being famous quite easy, confirming one's suspicion that the Beatles had been leading up to this all their lives. Everybody thinks they would have been famous if only they'd had the Latin in that. So when it happens, it comes naturally. You remember your old granny saying soft things like, You'll make it with that voice. Not he added that he had any old grannies. He got to the doctor two and three-quarter hours early, and to lunch on time, but in the wrong place. He bought a giant compendium of games from Asprey's, but having opened it, he could not, of course, shut it again. He wondered what else he should buy. He went to Brian Epstein's office. Any presents? He asked eagerly. He observed that there was nothing like getting things for free. He tried on the attractive Miss Hanson's spectacles. The rumour came through that the Beatles had been sighted walking down Oxford Street. He brightened. One of the others must be out, he said, as though speaking of an escaped bear. We only let them out one at a time, said the attractive Miss Hanson firmly. He said that to live and have a laugh were the things to do. But was that enough for the restless spirit? Weybridge, he said, won't do it all. I'm just stopping at it, like a bus stop. Bankers and stockbrokers live there. They can add figures, and Weybridge is what they live in, and they think it's the end. They really do. I think of it every day, me and my Hansel and Gretel house. I'll take my time. I'll get my real house when I know what I want. You see, there's something else I'm going to do, something I must do, only I don't know what it is. That's why I go around painting and taping and drawing and writing and that, because it may be one of them. All I know is this isn't for me. Anthony got him and the compendium into the car and drove him home with the television flickering in the soothing darkness, while the Londoners outside rushed home from work. The end.
2: Yay. <laughs>